0: Hello and welcome to episode 135 of the Thinking app podcast in Washington, D.C. I'm Ben Olson and with me
1: in Santa Barbara, California is Nathan Fox. How's it going? Dude, it's awesome. I, I, Santa Barbara is just um, paradise. I don't know if you know that. I'm here visiting a buddy of mine who lives here. Uh, he's got the ocean view, walked down onto the beach, Is perfect weather, it's just too. It's too much. Santa Barbara is just way too nice. So well, yeah, that's good. I, did you yeah. pick him out to record the show, or what are you doing, dude? He's actually gone now. He's he's on uh, he's on a business trip. So I'm just chilling in his house by myself. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, that's nice. I'll, I will uh, apologize again, though. It seems as if every time I visit my friends, there's always construction going on, and uh, there are some dudes doing some stuff next door. So you might hear uh, some banging around. Hopefully, it won't be too bad. I've tried to sequester myself here in uh, in the back bedroom. So
0: hopefully, okay. it'll be
1: all right. <clears throat> yeah. So today on the show, we'll be discussing a
0: PSA about a non-disclosed test. Um, okay. And apparently Google has messed up when you Google average salary, salary for lawyers. So Damn. we'll talk about that. And then Nathan is going to give us a case study for the D.C. area when it comes to don't pay for law school. Um, so that sounds interesting. Uh, anything yeah, else? I don't know
1: that I'm going to give it to you. I, I, I'm more going to ask you, Ben. I mean, you know a lot more about that market. But I, we just got this email from uh, Guillaume asking about his chances in D.C. specifically and, and whether we really endorse don't pay for law school, uh, even for him. Mm. So I wanted to just address some of his concerns, uh, ask you what you thought about uh about his chances and depending on what he wants to do in DC. So yeah, we'll get to his email and then hopefully we can kick that back and forth a little bit.
0: Okay. So I'll be giving it a case study. Did I even know about
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if I can which is unlikely. Yeah. Uh, yeah we we'll okay. Yeah. So the other thing is, I guess, wow, Facebook, uh, the Facebook group, the Thinking LSAT
1: podcast group on Facebook already has 321 members. That's Three hundred and twenty-one cool. members. I'm sure we lost a few uh, after episode one thirty-three, <laughs> but um, Do no. We need I, to we highlight it. Way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think. Well, the the debate was pretty civilized, really. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of messages, but it all was uh, pretty respectful. So, um, yeah, we, we're 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 still climbing. We're scratching our way up there. Cool. So, yeah, join that
0: group. It's uh, it's a fun place to be. Um, we also now have 10 patrons on Patreon
1: donating. Patron. I like how you say patrons on Patreon. What what should I say? I would probably say patrons, but oh, d- we could call them patrons. It <laughs> <laughs> makes it sort of sound robotic. Patrons. We have our patrons <laughs> yeah, out there. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. Okay. Patrons. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah,
0: whatever, so our ten patrons, <laughs> kind of like Tron <laughs> uh on patreon donate eighty three dollars a month that is thank you very much,
1: appreciate yeah, it, yeah, that's creeping up we We love it, even if you just only donate a a dollar or two, so thanks uh thanks very much for the show of support on it, patreon,
0: yeah, so. We're now. If you donate, what was it? Is it five dollars a month?
1: Or I think it's only five bucks. I do think this should be a more expensive feature. But we <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have a feature where you could, if you do, uh, a, a reward, if you donate five dollars a month, you can uh, get a clip from the show, your favorite clip from the show that we'll put up on YouTube. But we also decided that it would be a good idea to just play it on the show itself. Yeah. So we're gonna play that clip now. And this, this is from Charles, I guess. Well, Charles, yeah, he he, Charles, who said he finds the podcast to be wonderful and motivating, and he pledged five dollars a month, and he requested this clip from episode one twenty nine. Okay,
0: so the clip that we're going to be playing is from a previous episode, as opposed to a clip from the listener, because we've done that too, right? Um, yes,
1: I, I, try, I feel I like I don't know. I feel like
0: we played someone's question or something.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, we do that sometimes, I think. Or we had thought we were going to do that. I don't know. That's a good idea. We should do that.
0: Yeah, for just a dollar (laughs) more, you can send in your own voice. No, I don't know what it is. But yeah, the pricing is cheap here. Plus, you can, like $20, you get a t-shirt, right? Which costs us like $20 or more. Yeah, we
1: lose money if you do that. So don't do that.
0: (laughs) Please don't do that one. All right, well, I'm going to play this now, and then we will go from there.
1: I could have called it uh, Sisyphean. How about that? Would that be better for you?
0: Uh no, I'm still just sitting here.
1: Do you have a shitty education, Ben? Because I do, and I know those two things.
0: No, um, I um, no, I just have um, no knowledge of what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but my education was top
1: notch. <laughs> uh, Sisyphus was the
0: <laughs> nice, nice. Well, I uh. I yeah. yeah, I don't remember these things. It's like now that you've played it back to us, I, I do remember it. But
1: uh, all this is just a wash in my mind. Yeah, well, that was only like a month ago too. So um, you know, you. <laughs> no, I have a shitty memory too. So I, I don't, I don't blame you. But anyway, <laughs> well, thank my you. memory is top notch. But <laughs> well, is it? Okay, yeah. your education and your memory. Uh, yeah, but uh, anyways. Well, good. Cool. I hope that
0: was uh, entertaining, Charles, and for anyone else who liked that um, reminder of my
1: <clears throat> ignorance. So, <laughs> Patreon.com slash Thinking LSAT if you want to uh, chip in and help keep the lights on here at the Thinking LSAT podcast. Um, should we move on to this? Yeah, let's uh, move on. Our first agenda item? Yeah, so the, the non-disclosed test. What do you want to say about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Um, I've been getting a lot. Uh, we've we've discussed this recently on the show, but people are like worried that the July test is non-disclosed. And I don't know why they're worried about it. People are like, well, cause they're telling, they're like, they're, they're very serious as they're telling me this. They're like, yeah, you know, I, I, I would like to take the July test, but I'm just concerned because it's non-disclosed.
0: Yeah. That's bizarre. Um, yeah. Right. What would you say to that? Student. Well, it's the same thing that's been happening to for the February test for a long time, right? People are like, "Well, the fact that it is not disclosed makes me concerned." It's sort of like, "Well, what are you concerned about?" Well, I think they're using it to test questions or do things nefarious, you know. And it's like, um, "Well, no, actually." All the law schools own LSAC and they want to look to the tests as an indicator of your standing amongst other applicants. So the last thing they want to do is have one of the tests be different from all the other tests in their standardization because then they can't really tell where you're at. If they got someone with a February score and because it was non-disclosed it was a different test or not as accurate – then they would have to evaluate all of their February applicants or their, right. their applicants with the February test with a different framework. And that, that would just mess everything up. So no, they have all the incentive to keep all the tests as standardized as possible, including the non-disclosed ones, which would be February. As for July, I don't. I'm assuming it's not even not disclosed, but even if it were, it would be just like February and wouldn't matter.
1: Well, I think it is a non-disclosed test. Oh, July it is test. a non-disclosed test. Yes, okay. that's why people are worried about the July test that's coming oh, up. okay, the, yeah. The, but it's an it's a non it's just a non issue. The only difference is you're not going to get your test back. But who cares if you don't get your test back, you're still going to get a score back. And, you know, that score is going to be in line with your practice tests. If it's at or above your practice tests and you're happy with that, then your LSAT career is over. And that's that's fine. If it comes back lower than your practice tests or if it comes back, the score comes back lower than what you want out of life, then you are going to take it again in September. But, and people are like, because I was talking to somebody yesterday and he's like, well, I'm just, I'm worried that I won't be able to, to, I won't be able to learn from it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but you have all these other practice tests that you can continue learning from. And so sure, it would be great if you could get that test back, but that's not the point. The point is you need to get a score on record Mm -hmm. and you don't have a score on record. And July is an additional opportunity to get a score on record. Yeah. So I don't, I wouldn't be steering clear of that test really for any reason whatsoever. If you're ready to take it, take it and don't worry about the fact that it's non-disclosed. Like Ben says, it's not easier and it's not harder. It's just another test and they're not disclosing it. I think the reason why they don't disclose it is because they want to reuse those test questions later or use it for international, uh, LSATs or use it for, um, you know, Saturday Sabbath or some of that, like they end up recycling some of the questions. Right. Yeah. But so what it's, it's going to be, it's just part of the body of all of the LSAT questions that are out there. And it's a, it's a, an official score on record. So don't shy away just because it's non-disclosed. Yeah. Okay. That's the PSA I wanted to do. Cool. Uh, so, what's the Google snippet fail? Well, this is kind of another PSA. I, I, you know how Google Google has these snippets where you, if you put like, what's the population of, you know, Boise? Mm-hmm. Google doesn't. They used to just send you to websites where you would find the answer to the population for Boise. Yeah. But now, if you Google what's the population of Boise, Google just gives you the answer right at the top of the search results. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And on some things like the population of Boise, I'm pretty sure that they're just as accurate as anything else. Yeah. But if you Google average salary for lawyers, average, I did two different searches here. I searched for average starting salary for lawyers. I also just searched for starting salary for lawyers so that took the word average out of the search. Mhm. But in both cases, Google came back with a snippet at the very top that says $160,000. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, how awesome. <laughs> what? What are you doing, Google? Oh, Jesus Christ. Um so I threw on the agenda here, Ben. Um, I took this. Uh, I, I I put a chart here from NALP. Uh, hmm. You—that's the National Association for Legal Placement—and you've seen this salary distribution curve before, right? Yeah,
0: I have. Mm-hmm.
1: The uh, the salary distribution curve shows uh, a much different story from this one hundred sixty thousand dollar number that Google's throwing out there in the snippet. By the way. If you click those links that Google throws out there, you, the stories are like very clearly, Oh, well, this is the starting salary. If you went to Columbia.
0: Yeah. Well, even the picture. That's at the very top of the article. says, graduates from Harvard Law celebrate their 2014 commencement. In big legal markets, $160,000 is the most common salary that large firms reported paying (laughs) their first years. First of all, LSAC would have a heyday with this, right? This is a perfect LSAC question. It's what the large firms reported. Um, Assuming that's true, still,
1: it's large firms. Large firms pay more. And large firms hire elite candidates. That means people who went to elite law schools or who really killed it at their small, you know, regional school. Yeah. And yeah, $160,000 is a common starting salary. According to this curve from NALP. this, uh, the showing the bimodal, um, salary Mm -hmm. curve for brand new lawyers, bimodal means that there's. Two most common uh, concentrations of salaries for brand new lawyers, and one of them is at one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Very sharply, right? That's a yes. that's a really sharp curve
0: there. It's it's yes. pretty much at zero at one fifty five. It pops all the way up for one sixty, and then pops yep. all the way back down to one sixty five. Yeah.
1: Now they have rounded this to the nearest five thousand dollars, so that's part of it. You know, yeah. I'm sure there's some one sixty threes in there that get rounded, but it's also the case that the big firms just kind of go in lockstep with each other. Yep. Um, they they sort of they pay their first years basically the same. And they pay their second year is basically the same, uh, et cetera. But you do see here a big ass spike where brand new lawyers right out of law school, if they go into big law, they make Mm $160,000. But then you see way down on the left side of the curve, you see a much fatter, uh, peak. It's not quite as high, but it's much fatter. And you see a big chunk of lawyers who are concentrated between, what would you say there, Ben? 45 and 65?
0: Yeah, it looks like it starts going up. Maybe even between 30 and 70. 35,
1: yeah, up to
0: 70. Ben? Yeah. But bottom line, it's between 30 and 70. Ben? That is a totally different story than 160. Even if you go with the best number, we're looking at like 65,000 versus 70,000 at, at most. It's still a hundred thousand dollars lower than this Google snippet.
1: Right. And and it also does on this curve. I mean, we should post this right to the to the dot Um we'll post it in the show notes. We'll post the these uh the, the for sure the NALP thing. We need to post that so everybody can see what the hell we're talking about. But mm-hmm. the the mean is eighty-two thousand dollars. But nobody makes that mean even. Yeah. So Google, it's like the the Google is just dramatically fucking things up by saying it's one hundred and sixty thousand mm-hmm. because that might be the mode mm-hmm. that might be the most common single number that people make is one hundred and sixty. But that's like whatever it is. That's the yeah. Look at the peak, dude. It's like 17 percent of all lawyers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So so 17 percent. I Googled what's the average starting salary for lawyers. Yeah. And Google's like 160. Well, (laughs) that's 17% of lawyers who are making 160. Yeah. When I Google the average, I'm pretty much looking for the mean, Mm -hmm. right? That's Mm -hmm. add up all the dollars that everybody's making and divide by the number of people in the survey. Yeah. And the mean here on this curve is $82,000. But even that would be a lie because it's like 3 or 4% of lawyers that are actually making the mean. Mm-hmm. There's there there's this big trough between 65 and 160. Yeah. Where there there are a few handful of lawyers here and there that actually make those numbers. Yeah. But we got a big wide peak here between 40 and 65 mm-hmm. or 40 and 70. Yeah. And that's going to be fifty percent of all lawyers mm-hmm. that are that are making those very pedestrian forty to seventy thousand dollar salaries out of law school. Yeah, and so the mean is eighty two, but you got a handful of people making way way more than that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you've got most people making actually less than that. Yeah, and this is a really important thing to think about when you're deciding whether or not you're going to pay for law school, because I think you certainly don't pay for law school unless you know that you are going to be in the big bank (laughs) group. Yeah. You just, it's like, it's like literally impossible to pay back a quarter of a million dollars when you're making $50,000 salary. Yeah. It, It just ain't happening. Yeah, unless you
0: move into the par- your parents' basement and eat nothing Ugh. but top ramen.
1: Ugh, I don't think that's what people have in mind when they're you know when they're fantasizing about their <laughs> their prestigious legal career. No, I, but if just, they do some research just to make sure they're not
0: kidding themselves, and they search for starting salary for lawyers, they're going to feel rest assured that well, the average is one hundred and sixty. So <laughs> even if I'm a little bit below that. Which would kick you all the way down to sixty five, but you might think to yourself, even if I could just get one hundred and forty, <laughs> I'm I, doing
1: great. Um, oh, I, I Google Google is just really killing people here. I mean, that is a bad bad snippet. <laughs> that is not helping people. That you is, can provide is, feedback on that snippet, you know. Oh yeah. Well, maybe we all should click, you know, go- do the, do the Google search. And if it comes back 160,000 in that snippet, you should put the feedback and say, this is a lie. This right. is the big law salary here. I, I just clicked on the
0: feedback link. It's right below it in the bottom corner. It says, what do you yep. think? Option one, this is helpful. No option two. I don't like this. Okay. Maybe I'll select that one. Ooh. Option three, this is hateful, racist, or offensive. No, <laughs> it's not one of those. This is vulgar or sexually explicit. Nope. This is harmful, dangerous, or violent. Nope. Ooh, maybe it is harmful. That is It is harmful. This is misleading or inaccurate. There we go. There
1: we go. Misleading or inaccurate. That is definitely misleading.
0: Now I can put in a little link. I'm going to put in this link to uh, now. There
1: you go. Maybe someone nice. will actually read it. In- You're a good citizen, Ben. That's very <laughs> that's very good of you. Everybody else, listeners out there, you could save everybody a world of hurt by uh, also going and seeing if we can. That'd be amazing to check, and if we got the snippet fixed, that'd be awesome. Yeah, if they put in the point instead, that'd be accurate. <laughs> that'd be incredible. Yeah, I mean, they should come back with eighty-two thousand. That's the average, and yeah. then but they should also show that curve so that people realize that it's this crazy bimodal split. It's winners and losers (laughs) in the law game. Yep. Well, it It is. I I mean, I don't, I'm not, not I'm not, I'm not like labeling people losers. I'm just saying, you know, law is this inherently, um, it's, it is a competitive and zero sum, you know, if you think about a lawsuit, Somebody wins, somebody loses. Yeah. Well, you know, rich folk and rich corporations, they don't like to lose lawsuits. Yeah. That's why they pay their lawyers $160,000 right out of law school. Because they intend to win. The They intend to win. Yeah. And so in the game, you end up with sort of this, this set of killers who go out and just really rake in all the cash. Mm-hmm. And then you've got plenty of respectable and respected lawyers out there who I'm not shitting on the people who make $60,000 at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying you got to realize that that's what's that's the reality for a small firm lawyer. That's the reality for a government lawyer. Mostly, Mm -hmm. if you're going to if you're going to be a PD or if you're going to be in the prosecutor's office or if you're going to be, you know, almost every kind of normal lawyer, you're going to make less than a hundred grand, probably significantly less than a hundred grand. Yeah. And okay. So I, I know I've been yelling about this a lot, but boy, people have no idea. I mean, you, you say bimodal distribution in one of your LSAT classes and you know that like what two of the people in the entire room are going to have any idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So, okay. Anyway, this is um, the message that uh, I am passionate about trying to get out there. I want to ask you this, Ben. Um, I noticed I get I put the link in there. It's Nalp.org slash salarydistrib. Yeah. And um not distribution, but salary distrib. Nalp.org slash salary distrib. Mm-hmm. They were doing annual updates of this chart until 2014. Yeah, that's really bizarre. And I don't think there's any reason to suspect that the situation has changed.
0: Yeah, if you look back in time, they all look the same.
1: Right. Those curves barely were moving over, from year to year to year. And you know, we know anecdotally we know what first year associates at the big firms make and we also know anecdotally what um lawyers who kind of work more pedestrian jobs. We know what they make and we know anecdotally at least that, that this is still the situation. Yeah. So I'm really wondering, and if somebody out there has any connection to NALP or if you have any idea what's going on, I mean, cause this, this page is still linked from the front page of NALP as well. So it's like, this is if you click on their data or whatever yeah. salary information uh, link that they have linked prominently on the front page of their website, you st- you still get this, page which hasn't been updated. Yeah, that's bizarre. Wait, I'm on their homepage right now. Where, where's the link to... The... It's up in the top
0: navigation. Oh, research and statistics? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay, got it. Yeah, okay, so I got the menu, research and statistics. Scroll down. Oh my gosh, the is awful. Um, Boy, what a nightmare. Anyways,
1: okay, so salaries and compensation. Got it. And that goes to this page. Yeah. Hmm. And so... It's like, I, uh, I, of course, I immediately start speculating about like nefarious. <laughs> it's like, it's like the February set. Why is it non-disclosed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, anyhow, I'm, I am, uh, I'm, I'm very curious why, why this hasn't been updated. So if someone from NALP can please um, let us know what's up or even better, how about you just update your shit? Cause this, I, I think we should be getting this, this is important information, It is, and if they're the National Association for Legal Placement, well, that's this is their that's their this is their thing, seems to me.
0: I wonder if someone said stop, stop, displaying how awful it is out there, and they they couldn't get rid of what they had, so they just stopped.
1: Yeah, I don't. That that's kind of how my, you know, that's a conspiracy theory kind of a thing. But I started, I did start speculating, like, oh boy, I wonder if the law schools like. Got together and <laughs> t- 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 you know took Nalp aside and said, "Hey, listen, we need you to do us a favor here." I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, everybody should look at that, and you should have a very um, you know serious heart to heart with yourself about uh, how sure you are that you're going to end up in that big money spike. Because if you're if you're like rolling the dice to get that big money spike, it's a very uncertain investment. It's just a wager that I don't think I would be making. Yeah, well, without
0: knowing anything about you, I can tell you right now your chances are 16%.
1: Right, yes, thank you, Ben. Yeah. On average, we are all average. And if only 16%, I mean but I also we, but that it's might the be under a, yeah that's it, <laughs> it's smaller than that right because well, how many people actually went to law school that's people who actually finished law school got a job passed the bar yep and got a job and started making this money and, and then so this responded is, to this survey this is of successful lawyers yeah. only 16% are making the bank and everybody else, almost everybody is making at the mean or less. Yeah.
0: Oh uh, yeah. Much higher percentage. Yep.
1: For every lawyer who's making 160, <laughs> the mean is 82. Yeah. <laughs> so if it was only 106, you'd have to have a lawyer making 160 and a lawyer making zero yeah. in order to even it out at 80. Yeah that's not what's happening. What's happening is we just have tons and tons and tons of lawyers making 45 and 50 and 55 and 60 and 65. Yep. And those are, you know, those are whatever you can get by on $65,000, but you're not doing really super awesome at $65,000. And you're definitely not doing well at all. If you are walking out of law school with a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Yeah. Okay. Um, we can keep beating this dead horse uh I don't, I don't know if
0: it's dead actually this this horse keeps getting back up again and says wait but imagine the money
1: <laughs> it's a it, dude it's it's a zombie it's a zombie horse yeah. like the four horsemen of the apocalypse mm-hmm. like zombie horse mm-hmm. is what this thing is cuz yeah because we keep getting Well, why don't you read, Ben? This is your student, uh, Guillaume. Mm -hmm. Um, Why don't you read this uh, email?
0: Yeah. Hey, Guillaume. Thanks for writing in, by the way. Guillaume says, Hi, I was listening to the podcast you guys put out this week and had a question about your, quote, don't pay for law school, quote, maxim. Let's say that my goal after law school was to work in a specific job market, Washington, D.C., for instance. Let's also assume that the only school I can get a full scholarship to is outside of the market and not well positioned to place graduates, regardless of grades, in the D.C. market. This premise may be the problem in my reasoning. If so, I'd love to hear how a school outside of a particular job market can position itself, can position for jobs in said market. Guillaume, never say said. Um, (laughs) Yes. It's a very lawyerly thing to do. You could put that market. Yeah, in that market. But the best lawyers actually don't say that. In any case, um, he might just be joking around. But um, would it be worth taking a half scholarship at a school like George Mason, American GW, to all but guarantee the likelihood of working in D.C.? Hmm. I'm sure your answer will be no, but I'm curious to hear your reasoning. Is finding work in a different market actually easier than I'm making it out to be? Love the podcast and the books. Best, you know. Okay, so, um, yeah. I I guess it, I'd really be curious what the other school is.
1: Yeah, so I I don't know what uh, Gee's lsat score is and and i don't know what his undergraduate grades are and so i don't know what i don't know if i i I was wanting to question the first assumption which is that he can't get a full scholarship anywhere in dc
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. i mean is that true is he Well, yeah. Is there not a a, a Golden Gate or a Southwestern or something like that in DC? There's definitely
0: some lower ranked schools. I mean, you have Catholic, and he listed here American. Um, American is one of those schools that's not as highly ranked, but a lot of firms in the DC area hire from American, at least students who do well at American. Um, And so it might be the sweet spot. It's where you can get a scholarship, maybe a full full scholarship, and then turn around and work in D.C. So, for example, his list here has George Mason, American, GW. It doesn't have Georgetown. But GW is, is a, a much higher-ranked school than American, and George Mason is higher than American. So, if you can get a half-scholarship at GW, I would be surprised if you couldn't get a full scholarship at American or even a three quarter scholarship at George Mason, which is a public school in Virginia. So if you're a Virginia resident, you're also going to get some of a discount there. So I, yeah, I'd be really curious, um, what he can actually get in the DC market by looking even
1: at these three schools. Okay. And he, but he also needs to add Catholic to the list. Catholic. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that he needs to add in the, There's, the there's several
0: schools here. There's Howard, um, I mean, <clears throat> and then Georgetown. Georgetown is the highest ranked school, so he's least likely to get a scholarship there. But still, a school worth applying to, so that you can then go back to these other schools, especially GW, which is fiercely competitive with Georgetown, and say, "Hey, look, I got into Georgetown. Uh, can you give me more money so I go to GW?"
1: Right. Okay. So, and and I'm because I, I did want to. That's the first assumption that I wanted to question here. It's like, well, wait a second. Aren't there many, many other schools in the DC market that you could be adding to your list here. I think people, they very frequently do the reflexive, like, Oh, well, obviously for obvious reasons, no, not Catholic, you know, Oh, I wouldn't Catholic. No, they're not even on my, and it's like, well, hold on a second. I thought you wanted to work in the DC market.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, then you need to apply to every school in DC. Yeah. Okay. Um, then the next thing And as, as uh, Guillaume um, acknowledges here, um, what do you think about, well, (laughs) you know, uh, how about the um, half scholarship at American to all but guarantee the likelihood of working in DC? What do you think about that? Does going to American all but guarantee y- you a job in d c does going to George Mason all but guarantee working in d c No I mean okay you have to you have to do
0: well at those schools uh, so actually that's a reason to go to a lower ranked school to make sure you do well. I've seen a lot of i mean this is just anecdotal, but a lot of uh, American law grads um American the school. AU uh, in DC at firms that I would not expect them to be at given the ranking of American. I would say, oh, well, it's a lower ranked school. So why are so many American graduates at these top firms? But I think they're picking up their top candidates. Also, American is one of those schools that feeds into George Mason and GW. Um, that was that. I don't know if you remember a few episodes back, we looked at the 509 for, I think, GW or maybe Georgetown. I can't remember now. Actually, maybe it was George Mason. But in any case, they had a ton of transfers from American. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on here in the D.C. area that would allow for you to, I think, negotiate things and at least shoot for a full scholarship.
1: Yeah. And and I just want to point out again, that there is no guarantee of working in a, in a specific job market. I mean, when I was at Hastings in the middle of San Francisco, i I went there because I thought I was going to live in San Francisco for the rest of my life. Well, for one, that turned out to be wrong. Okay. <laughs> Cause you know, your twenties or thirties, you you don't know how you're going to be feeling in your thirties and forties. Yeah. Sorry. You can't predict everything that's going to happen in your life. And so for one, you being married to a specific job market, it might just be a temporary thing anyway. And maybe you should just broaden your horizons. Um, you know, just give yourself more options, period. Yeah. But, but two, Many people, myself included, I mean, I was at Hastings because I was in love with San Francisco and I wanted to stay in San Francisco. And when I was at Hastings, the career services people were like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, you're not going to get a job in San Francisco when you graduate. <laughs> <They> were, <laughs> the, the, it, was, it was, you know, it was they were. They were very clear, like, oh, no, I mean, if you want a job, you're probably going to have to go to Fresno or you're probably going to have to go to Reading, or you're, like wherever, you know, wow. just.
0: Yeah, that's they, interesting. And,
1: Well, and this is, you know, allegedly a good law school in the middle of San Francisco. I can't, I can't tell you how often people ask me where I go to, where I went to law school. And I always sort of cringe because I hate the next part of the conversation, which is I go, Oh yeah, I went to Hastings and they go, Oh, Hastings. Wow. Yeah. That's a good school. Isn't it? (laughs) And I always have to go, no, I mean, it's okay. like Yes, it's good, but it's not great. And people love to do the comparison thing, right? So they they think it's oh it's so much better than a than a USF. It's so much better than a Golden Gate. I really don't think it is. Yeah. I mean it they I, I will say it again. The career services people were very clear, at least when I was there, that we were just not getting jobs in San Francisco. Huh. And that's the best law school in the city of San Francisco.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But they they did not have job placement in San Francisco at that time, at least not for most normal people. Now I'm sure that the the big law firms in San Francisco were hiring from every class at Hastings. You know I'm I'm sure that happened. Mm-hmm. But the average normal regular worker be lawyers, which is what eighty percent of all lawyers. Yeah, according to that NALP curve. Yeah. Eighty percent of all lawyers just trying to get a uh, a government job or a or a small firm kind of a normal lawyer job. Those folks were, yeah, we they they were going to Fresno, yeah, not staying in San Francisco. So anyway, I would question. G's, G seems to be assuming here that if he goes to. And it's funny, right? Cause we don't even know where he's drawing the line. He's lumping George Mason, American and GW all together, which for one thing, those are, there's differences there. Yeah. But then he's also like ignoring Catholic and he's just, it's, it's, I, I don't know. I think people do these sh- like short, shorthand. They, they don't, they're not seeing all of the subtleties. Yeah. I guess the lumping things together too much and making some assumptions that I just don't think are, Valid at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So then he also assumes that a school outside of D.C. would not be able to position him for a job in D.C. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that?
0: Uh, Well, I think there is some merit to that if it's much further away. But um, depending on how you pursue the market, I mean, let's say you get a full scholarship to a school, even if it is really far away. And as soon as you start applying for jobs your one L year, you just target the DC market and see what you can find here. Um, you work your connections, start obviously, yeah. Start sending out your resume. Those are the firms that are going to get back to you. And if you can get back from hear back from one of them, well, now you do well that first summer, and they're almost certainly going to invite you back again, or at least connect you with other people in the area who will. Uh, want to hear from you so i i think a lot of uh your job is what you make of it or where you work is what you make of it
1: i think the schools love to to perpetuate the myth that you know they oh boy if you want to work in dc then you just have to go to I, I bet the people at american love to love to sell that yeah
0: i i, right? I do think that it helps um sure but
1: yeah uh, well, the fact that you're in town makes it easier for sure as well. Right? Yeah. You can I mean, go to stop be meeting, places. Yeah, exactly. You're going to be meeting people. There's going to be conferences and other opportunities for some elbow rubbing. And, you know, you're, you're gonna, of course you're, you're sort of more connected, but that doesn't one, it doesn't guarantee that you will be able to get a job in that market. And two, it also doesn't mean, you know, in the reverse is also not true that if you don't, go to school in the market. You can't get a job in that market. That's just not, that's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. My advice for Ghee would be clearly just dude apply broadly, apply, give yourself many more options than what you're thinking about. Yeah. Apply to 15 schools, apply to 20 schools. Um, if you're going to apply in DC and if you're really interested in DC, then you need to saturate DC. You need to apply to every school in DC. Yeah. So add Catholic, add Georgetown and add, I don't know. Are there other ones that he needs Mm -hmm. to add? Oh, Howard, right. You mentioned, okay. So, and DC, but then he,
0: yeah, but anyways, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, and then he also needs to just, I mean, there must be schools in the outlying areas and he just needs to cast a wider net. Mm hmm. And then negotiate, and then uh, yeah, I mean I'm I'm sticking to my guns on don't don't pay that half scholarship is a fifty percent discount, but you still end up paying twenty five thousand dollars a year to go to these schools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It can't be worth it. Not not if there's somebody who would let you go for free.
0: At the very least, use those opportunities or those scholarships to make the partial scholarships as close to full as possible if you want to pay a few thousand dollars fine that's your choice I think but you can get more than half
1: <laughs> you can and and you really need to negotiate I mean you ne- you need to be a, a really a tough negotiator you, they do this all day every day they just they negotiate these deals they're they're negotiating with hundreds of other students. Yeah. Think about it this way,
0: the staff members who fail to negotiate successfully or let the bank bleed don't work there anymore.
1: Right. They're going to smile. They're going to they're going to remember your name. They're going to be super friendly to you. <laughs> they're going to tell you that you're not those kind of <laughs> yeah, people <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. What did Hastings say? Was it Hastings or Hastings told me that the the Hastings guy was like, well, you're not going to, Hastings is a, this is a transformative experience. You're not going to, surely you're not going to let money considerations come into play here. And it was turning up his, turning up his nose, like, well, you're not going to, oh, like, this is so, ew. Like, he, like he smelled something bad. Oh no money. You're not going to, you're not going to think about money. This is your legal like, career. <laughs> meanwhile, he, the only thing he was thinking about was money. Yeah. You know, that's his professional job is to think about money. That's all he does is think about money. Yeah. Fuck that guy so much. God damn it. That pissed me off. And then it was your student well, then, right? who said it was a student who, who told me that I was more of a Hastings type of a guy. Yeah. 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 And I just foolishly let my ego, you know, it was, an, that was an ego driven decision to just light $150,000 on fire. That was just a very poor ego yeah. purchase. Yeah. Okay. Um, should we move on? Sure. Okay. This has been on the agenda for a while. Um, It's the subject. This is an email. Subject the nickname thing needs to stop. Dear Ben and Nathan, thanks for such an awesome podcast. Feel free to use my first name if you read this on the show. This is Katie. Thanks, Katie. I wanted to share a few things with you. One, your podcast has been absolutely instrumental in my LSAT prep success. I started with a diagnostic of 161. After merely listening to every single episode of your podcast and taking several timed sections, my scores have skyrocketed. My last five scores have been in the 170s, and my most recent test was a 180. I owe that almost completely to y'all's wisdom, and I'm so thankful I found this podcast. Thanks, Katie. We we really appreciate that. Um, I guess I would make a side note here. I get emails sometimes from people who don't have any money for a class, but they want help anyway, mm-hmm. which I appreciate. Um, and but I get emails sometimes that are like, "Well, I, I've listened to a couple episodes, and and I want I want help, but I don't have money for a class." Yeah, and then I go, "Well, there's a hundred and." Thirty more episodes you could listen to. Yeah. You could start with that. Cause we get emails like this fairly regularly, don't we? People saying, Oh, I just, I listened to every episode of the podcast and my scores went crazy. Yeah. Okay. So start with that, you know, get back to us after you've done all 130 episodes. Um, all of you people who are looking for some free stuff, (laughs) we we do want to help. Um, but you do have to like, sort of help yourself. Um, all right. Number two, she's got a numbered list here. All right. Number two, after listening to your most recent show on personal statements, I started thinking more about my own law school, personal statement. I did some research online and came across this packet of example statements. Oh, I haven't actually looked at these yet, but we, uh, we could put a link to this probably on our, uh, on our, on the show notes. Yeah. Okay. um, scroll down to page 12. Check out this excerpt. All my friends know me as mama Tillotson, the responsible and efficient one. (laughs) What the hell is with the nickname thing? Papa Zach, mama Tillotson, bug guy, Marco. I'm so over it. I truly can't wait until someone submits an essay about how they earned the nickname sugar daddy or boy (laughs) toy. Okay. Um, (laughs) <laughs> That's interesting. I uh, uh, Sure. Of course. Hey, I didn't read that thing. The Papa Zach personal statement. I didn't read that in order for people to just try to rip off exactly that gimmick. That's not the point. Um, okay. So I yeah. agree. The nickname thing is probably not a good move, That got Zach into Stanford and, and uh, it worked one time. And I don't think anybody else needs to try to mimic that. Yeah. That wasn't the point of including that on the show. You do need to think about your brand. Your brand does not have to be a nickname. You can have a brand without having a nickname. Okay. Number three. I think your rantings against Halo Top may be backfiring. As I'm currently living abroad, I haven't been able to try Halo Top since it got big in the States. The more you talk about it, the more fixated I become on trying it. As soon as I get off the plane, the next time I go back, I'm heading to the grocery store to pick up a few pints and see what all the fuss is about. Um, okay. Okay, but whatever, I'll leave that. Uh, Number four, I've been toying with the idea of writing a diversity statement about having been in an abusive relationship. Hmm. The statement would focus less on the relationship itself. I don't really want to burn out the admissions committee like that. Oh, sorry, bum out the admissions committee like that. And more on the strength of character it took to leave that relationship and how it's made me into a more empathetic, mature person. That relationship has had a huge impact on my life and worldview, and I worry that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention how it's shaped me. Do you think something that personal slash intense could ever be appropriate, or should I leave it alone? Thanks again for everything y'all do. All the best, Katie. What do you think about that last one? That's a diversity statement she's thinking about. Yeah,
0: I'm not too sure how it fits into diversity, although a lot of things do. I don't know. I mean, like a lot of these things, it just depends on how you write it and what you say. It's not so much the topic is per se good or bad. It's whether you frame it in a way that's receptive or that's easy to be received, I guess.
1: Yeah. I, I don't have any problem with it at all. We've, we've received several of these questions recently. Like, should I write my personal statement or should I include uh, Sorry, sorry? Um, many times it's about addendums, right? Sure. I had terrible undergraduate grades. And the reason why is because I was in this, uh, you know, I had this uh, incident, a uh, sexual assault. I was assaulted. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, We always say, absolutely, yes, you should include that. Mm -hmm. But I do think, as Katie mentions, you don't want to bum out the admissions committee. Yeah. You certainly don't want to dwell on um, negative. You just don't want to dwell on negatives generally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So if you're going to acknowledge a, you know, a sexual assault or something like that as part of an addendum where you're, you're trying to kind of say, Hey, look, my grades don't reflect who I really am today because here's this thing that happened. Yeah. In that case, I think you can be very vague about it. Uh, Am I right there Mm -hmm. that you can just say I was a victim of sexual assault and it took me a while to get back on my feet kind of thing. I think that's better because it doesn't,
0: Invite the reader to try to imagine all this, they just kind of accept it and look at the time and, frame and move on.
1: Yeah, and what you want to dwell on is the getting back on your feet part, mm-hmm. not the what knocked you off your feet to begin with part. Yeah, so because ultimately you just want to be putting your best foot forward here, so to the extent. I mean, and in, in inter- putting this in a diversity statement is a bit unusual, but that it could totally work. It depends on right how she does it and what all of her other documents say. Mm-hmm. But I would just make sure that you are spinning it in a in a positive way. If you're if you're going to talk about the strength of character and how you are now more empathetic and mature, that's all fine. That's all that all sounds good to me. Yeah. Um, just don't be dwelling so much on the abusive relationship itself. I think you can just mention that it was an abusive relationship and then talk about where you went from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thanks Katie. Is that
0: it? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Katie. All right. This one's from Chris. Hi Ben and Nathan. I appreciate all the advice from the podcast. It's been helpful through taking the LSAT and still very useful uh, through the upcoming 2019 application process. Great. I have one question regarding the application process and one regarding the scholarship negotiation process. I don't mind if you guys share either one on the podcast. One, a few weeks ago while critiquing Marcus's personal statement, Nathan made a comment about how he shouldn't say he felt depressed because, paraphrasing, nobody wants a depressed person on their team. What about mentioning it on a GPA addendum because my grades slipped much my- majorly after being hospitalized for such issues. Would that also be a red flag for the same reason? I graduated at a 3.0 and a math degree.
1: Hmm. I have two thoughts there. Yeah. Um, Well, first I, you could just say I had a math major and, you know, I took these really hard classes and 3.0 is not that bad. So that's one thing. I mean, that's, I would just at least consider that route instead of going into the depression route. So just think about that. Maybe you can pull that off, you know, and, and if you can, then hey, now you're, it's, that's actually putting your best foot forward, right? Cause you're like, Hey, look at this differential equations or whatever that I took.
0: Yeah. I guess I'd be worried that that doesn't allow Chris to highlight what his GPA would have been outside of this episode or this time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's just, that's just an idea. But the other, the other thing I wanted to say was, um, similar to what we were just talking about with Katie is just, you, you just want to make sure you're not dwelling on this depression. And the, the fact that you were hospitalized for depression Mm Mm-hmm is not a point in your favor. I mean, that's not a selling point. So you need to, if you are going to go there, if you're going to acknowledge that you need to, you need to focus on the recovery and focus on how you're different now. And this is not an issue anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cause they do not want somebody that, that they think is going to end up being hospitalized for depression while they're in law school. That's not what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's just not, they're looking for somebody who's going to just kill it as a lawyer and go be super successful and buy the school a building. Yeah. That's what they want. And if you're, you know, I I had these poor grades because I was hospitalized for depression. You better convince them that that is not going to happen again. Yeah, you need to focus on what's
0: happened since then and why it's almost un- almost certain that it's never going to happen again. I almost wonder if you could go down the hospitalization route without mentioning depression. I mean, that might be a little strange, but you could say, um, hey, my grade's in this semester. Was it a semester? Huh. Well, whatever. It That's
1: was. a very good point. I was hospitalized in the fall of whatever. yeah if you take that semester out of my grades, here's what my GPA was. Here's what my GPA was after, uh, after my, uh, my medical issue. Well, <laughs> yeah, really, because then it could yeah. be, well, they, they won't know. Be, they have no idea. No. And you don't have to tell them that's not, they don't, that's, it's your choice. What type of a case you make. And so depression is a medical issue. You were hospitalized for a medical issue. If you just leave it at medical issue, now it could be, you know, you needed a kidney transplant or something. Yeah. And if, yeah, I think that's a good point there, Ben. I think I would go that way with it. I just feel like depression, it's so pervasive and it sticks around sometimes for a really long time. Everybody has depressed people in their life and we know how devastating that can be. Yeah. And so I don't, not that like there needs to be a stigma against depressed people. It's just that you're trying to sell yourself here Mm -hmm. and it's hard to make a case for, Hey, you want me because I was hospitalized for depression. Yeah. That that's, uh, that's not a, not the, that's not the start of a really good sales pitch. I don't think. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. Number two. I got a modest 161 on my LSAT and received an email from Elon University saying that my academic profile could earn me a full scholarship. Pure stats debating since I obviously don't have any offers right now, but would a full ride from a lower ranked school be useful as leverage to negotiate more scholarship from schools where my academic profile is more average? I would like to stay in the DC area for school, but there are no real middle ground schools. That's interesting. Um, Well, yeah, any scholarship can be used to help negotiate. It may not do as much. If it's a faraway school that these schools, local schools don't care about as much, it might not be as helpful, helpful, but it's better than nothing.
1: They need to believe you that you're going to walk away. Yeah. So that's the question is, you know, you're trying to get more money out of, uh, what American, where is What is Elon university? I have no idea. Never heard of it. So the school, you know, those schools, they just might be like, well, Elon university, Hey, we're American university in DC. You've heard of us. No one's heard of Elon university. You're not going to actually walk away from American to go to Elon university. Yeah. Um, this is in Greensboro, unless,
0: North Carolina, and it's not okay.
1: ranked. Okay. But but maybe you are, though. Maybe maybe you legitimately will walk away. Yeah. Uh, and you probably should yeah. walk away from, you know, especially if it's like, hey, full price at American or a full ride at Elon University. Um, I don't think you want to be paying full price at American ever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So would you go that far, Ben? Don't ever pay full price at American.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I can't see why you'd want to pay full price there.
1: Okay. So if you are actually willing to walk away, I almost said this earlier. Uh, it's, it's important to put this out there. The negotiation isn't necessarily over just because you do walk away from American. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
1: it is, you know, I mean, I have that friend from UCLA who walked away from UCLA. She formally withdrew her application to UCLA because she was going to take a full ride to Irvine. Yeah. And they didn't give, they would not give her a full ride to UCLA. They refused to give her a full ride to UCLA. She withdrew her application. Then they called her back that same day and gave her a full ride to UCLA. (laughs) Yeah. Because she actually walked away. She actually, you have to be willing to actually turn your back and walk off of the car, car lot. Yeah. Or else you're not going to get your best price. I mean, it's just, that's the, that's the way it works. You have to, you have to actually be, you're never going to get the, you're never going to find out what the actual best deal is. Yeah. If you don't say, okay, sorry, but this is, I'm, I can't do this and and leave. Yeah. So, It is certainly possible that they would give you more money, but you have, it's not just like, Oh, Hey, look, I have this offer and they're just immediately falling all over themselves to give you more money. Yeah. They need to believe it. They need to believe that this is a credible threat. And sometimes they're not going to believe that it's a credible threat until you actually do walk away. Yeah. I think that's what happened with my friend at UCLA, by the way, because she she already uh, had two UCLA degrees, um, at her bachelor's and her master's mm. from UCLA. And I think they were just convinced that they were going to get her no matter what. Yeah. But she had another competing offer and she actually was willing to take it. Yep. And so when she walked away, then all of a sudden, oh, wow, we did. We found money for you. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Is it true that there's no real middle ground schools in D.C.? That doesn't seem possible.
0: It just depends on what you mean by middle ground, I guess. Because, yeah. You know, I mean, there's Georgetown, which is high, highly ranked. Okay. Um, but yeah. then, you know, GW's in the 20s. George Mason, I think, is in the 30s. Americans in the 40s. So there's quite a little scale of schools there. Um, yeah. And Catholic, Howard? They're, I'm not sure where they're ranked. And then there's UDC, but they are lower ranked. But,
1: I don't know. I don't know what Chris is looking for here. If that's not, if those aren't middle ground, what is middle ground then? I don't get it. Yeah. Those all sound middle ground to me. Actually, every single school you just mentioned, except for Georgetown mm-hmm. kind of seems middle ground to me. Yeah. Right. GW is a good school, but it's not Georgetown. Yep. It's not top 14. Mm-hmm. It's what is it? It's, like it's 24. a 24. Yeah. Ultimately that's a regional law school. Mm-hmm. Right? No. Nobody from nobody in California is like, "Oh, wow, you went to George Washington? That's awesome." Yeah. People would be like, "Where? What? What's that? Where is that?" Yeah. Is that in St. Louis? I mean, people for for real, yeah. people aren't even gonna have any idea what that is. Yeah. So those all sound like middle ground schools to me. I don't. I'm not sure what Chris is talking about there.
0: Yeah. He goes on, thanks for all your help, and especially to Ben's tutors who helped me get my score from a 147 diagnostic to a 161. The 161 I ended up with. Keep up the great podcast. I love to recommend it to people when they talk about LSAT studying. Chris.
1: Sweet. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, hi, Ben and Nathan. Thank you for producing such a wonderful podcast. After scoring a 159 on my diagnostic, I studied intensely for about six months and received a 170 on the February 2018 LSAT. Ben, your score tracker provided me with an excellent tool for monitoring my progress over time. Hey, Ben, you want to give a shout out to the URL for the score tracker?
0: Yeah, no problem. Um, It's just strategyprep.com forward slash tracker, I think. Shoot, that's funny. I don't even know.
1: Put you on the spot.
0: Yeah, I haven't used it in a long time. That's it. It works.
1: Okay, strategyprep.com slash tracker. And that has uh, not only the ability to to grade your tests, but also explanations uh, that are right there, yeah. right? Linked mm-hmm. to videos. Yep. So go to go to strategyprep.com slash tracker if you want to um, see Ben's excellent score tracking tool. Nathan, I purchased all of your books through Amazon, and I cannot thank you enough. They have been key components of my self-studying so far. Nice. In particular, the advice you give in the LR book on predicting the answers really helped me find my groove with that section. Yeah, if you go to Amazon and just search for... um, Oh, I don't know. Fox LSAT, I think, is probably the quickest thing you'll find. Uh, All six of my books are available on Amazon. And the book here that we're talking about is my Logical Reasoning Encyclopedia. Awesome. Predicting the answers on logical reasoning, Ben, is basically the superpower for logical reasoning.
0: Yeah. I was just talking to a student last night about it in class. They were wondering whether they should predict the answer or just... Dive into the answers and look for the one that sticks out <laughs> because that's a little easier. And there, you know, it was a sincere question. I was like, well, yeah. I can see why you want to do that because it's no offense, but it's kind of the lazy path, right? You don't have to think too hard before and you just start going through and searching for something that sounds good or fitting for the circumstances. But um, if you do that, I don't know that you really understand the argument that well, because until you can predict an answer, or at least a loose prediction, my predictions are always loose, but um, a rough prediction of what you think the correct answer will be, uh, you don't know whether you've really wrapped your mind around the premises and the conclusion, and whether they support it or not, and how they don't. Um, And so that was my advice, to give it a shot. It's slower at first, but you get better at it.
1: Yeah, and eventually it'll end up being much, much faster, And, and also much more reliable. I mean, you need to remember that four out of five answer choices are wrong and they're, they're kind of professionally written to try to trap you and confuse you and distract you and waste your time and just frustrate you generally. If you're down there in the answer choices, hoping that the answer choices are going to explain it to you. um, Four out of five of them are lies. Four out of five of them are, not at all helpful. Yeah. And even the correct answer may not be that. Sure, helpful. So, no, <laughs> it's not the correct that answer, a lie. <laughs> they can, well, they can obfuscate. They can write the correct answer in the most confusing possible way mm-hmm. where the only way to get it would be to really know what you are looking for. Like, Oh, the gist of it that I'm looking for is this. hmm when you know what you're looking for, then maybe that right answer that they kind of craftily disguised, Mm -hmm. you might be able to see, Oh, they're using different words from what I was expecting. Yeah. But, Oh, this will actually do what I needed done. And so that's why this is the answer. Yeah. Predict the answers on the logical reasoning, cover up the answer choices and predict the answers on the logical reasoning. Okay. Um, Despite having a 170 on record, I'm going to retake in June because the average of my last five practice tests before the exam was 174. Yeah, I would retake in that situation, wouldn't you? Hundred percent. Sure.
0: That's that's every uh, time. The average.
1: Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I I would think keep taking it again until you get a 174 or higher. Um. Okay. Suffice to say, I totally shit the bed on test day. Mm, I wouldn't call that totally shitting the bed. <laughs> Average of one seventy four, and you get a one seventy. That's within normal f- fluctuation. That's not. That's not. To- that's not shitting the bed.
0: Yeah, it's still a nice bed.
1: Yeah, the bed. <laughs> you don't need to ruin the, the. The bed's not getting thrown away on that. Yeah. <laughs> um. My LSAC GPA is 3.94, and I want to be as competitive as possible for full academic scholarships. As you both say time and again, don't pay for law school. <laughs> Someone is definitely drinking the Kool-Aid here. That's good. I took the last month completely off from studying and I'm going to begin taking time sections again this week. I'm hoping that with continued studying, which I actually enjoy now, I will be able to continue to move my plus or minus score band further to the right by June's test date. That's good. Juanita's thinking about this in a, in a, you know, probabilistic way, understanding that she is going to have some ups and downs in her individual data points. And she's just focused on moving the whole curve to the right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Given that I am going to continue studying for the LSAT, do you guys think I should wait to begin working on my applications and essays until I have a score on record I'm satisfied with? Or would you go ahead and begin slowly working on these pieces while also continuing to study? I plan on matriculating in 2019 and will submit my applications by the end of September or early October. I'm thinking that I could start working on the applications and essays after I've put in my requisite studying for a given day, but I'll defer to the two of you for further input. Thanks again, Juanita. What do you think? Should she wait until the LSAT's over, or should she start chipping away at those essays now?
0: Um, I would actually start a little bit. Uh, to get your mind thinking about it in the background, so that when you're driving around, you come up with more ideas and better ideas and refine it over time. I
1: think yeah, when you're,
0: go I ahead. think it's less important than your score, but your score is already in a good place, and it's not like you're going to be doing LSAT all the time. You just need to do it a little bit, so.
1: Yeah, you've only got an hour or two of productive LSAT studying in you on any given day. And after that hour or two is done, you know, you still might be thinking about your law school dream and want to get those applications taken care of. So, nothing wrong with uh having a glass of wine and just blast out a rough draft of that statement, put it away for a week or two, come back to it a little while later and, and reread it and see what you're thinking about it now. Yeah, That'd be good. That would be good. It'd be a civilized way to do yeah. it. Yeah. Cool. Next one. Yeah.
0: Thanks. Dear Ben and Nathan, after a disappointing December score, I took your advice focusing on quality over quantity. Wow. Just one section a day with a comprehensive, with comprehensive review. I also applied your test mechanics taking a deep breath before the section, pausing when confused, et cetera. This is good stuff. Uh, We should just read these kind of emails, and we don't even have to say anything. We can just tell everyone what other people have learned. I'm excited to say that thanks to this wonderful podcast, I jumped from a 159 in December to a 172 on this last February LSAT. Wow. That's incredible. That's a game changer. It's bittersweet. But I was hoping you could indulge one last email question. What do y'all think my chances are Do to be accepted into a top 14 school this cycle? Now wait a second, Anonymous. You've listened to the show <laughs> enough to know that <laughs> you need to focus on quality over quantity, one section at a time with comprehensive review, taking a deep breath, pausing when confused, etc., yeah, you don't know that we're not going to answer this question.
1: Yeah, that's funny, huh? Somebody who really took our advice on lots of things and then is asking us one to speculate about your admissions chances, which we wouldn't do because you can do the statsturbation on your own by looking at five hundred nine reports and that kind of thing. Yeah. And two, anonymous is asking about applying with a February LSAT score for this same cycle. <laughs> Which we hate. Selective listening, anonymous. Selective listening. Um, hmm. Well, I think we should skip all the rest of this email. I don't think we need to read the rest of that.
0: That is the uh, the death knell.
1: <laughs> That's the penalty that you get for not listening to. Well, I mean, what else, we're not going to say. I mean, yeah, we could skip down to the like closing line.
0: Thanks a lot. It has been. It has truly been nice knowing y'all thanks anonymous we're impressed by what you started with your email
1: (laughs) yeah we appreciate it we're glad you improved to a 172 don't apply this cycle and we're not gonna stasturbate sorry but yeah it's been nice knowing you too cool you could keep listening by the way you don't have to stop listening just because you're done with the L's hat yeah um another one yeah you got it Subject: Struggling to trust the process with TestMasters. Hi Nathan, Event five weeks ago, prior to learning about your LSAT prep courses, I enrolled in TestMasters' 15-week online course on the recommendation of a friend. While most of TestMasters' strategies and theories on how to approach individual questions seem to align with yours, their approach to studying for the test in general so far seems to be quite different. I'm registered to take the June 11th exam, and I'm wondering if I should should trust the process with Testmasters, or if I should enroll in a different program now before it's too late. I'm sure that the Testmasters course layout is by design, and it has already improved my question-attacking skills, but after listening to your podcast, I'm worried that its apparent limitations might significantly limit my LSAT score's ceiling. Here are my two major concerns about the Testmasters approach. 1. I took a diagnostic before I started the course, but I will not take my next practice test until after week 7. The course is set up to include 6 practice tests as part of the curriculum, the initial diagnostic, and then the others after weeks 7, 9, 11, 13, and 14. They also provide 12 supplemental tests. However, I can't take any of the supplemental tests until after I have taken the first 2 tests, i.e. after week 7, and I wouldn't be surprised if they have additional restrictions on when I can take the other supplemental tests, since I don't seem to know those kinds of things until I'm at certain points in the coursework.
0: Interesting. So they definitely have a belief in six or seven weeks of no testing.
1: Pre-prep, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm sure, though, that they still are giving you real LSAT questions that entire time.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm sure you're they just,
1: are. You're just not doing anything time. You're just not doing any time to practice. Yeah. Well, my, I would say they've given you these supplemental tests, right? And it says, I can't take any of them until after I've whatever. Yeah. Well, what are they going to do? Spank you if you do. I mean, it's your prep. You could do what you want, right? Yeah. I don't know what ha I don't kick you out of the class.
0: Online? Is that why
1: Oh, so they provide them but they're not unlocked until after week? That's seven? what I was
0: thinking. But maybe if if they've been given to you in hard copy, <laughs> then go right ahead.
1: In Slash Slack. go on Amazon and buy a book of ten tests and do your own just thing. Do whatever you want. Yeah. I wouldn't throw away the whole class just because you think they're not giving you enough practice tests. Yeah. All right. So far, each lesson is designed to go over specific types of questions. We review three or four of those questions as part of the lesson, learning about approach, common mistakes, etc. And then the homework includes around 80 LR questions, 12 RC sections, and or 12 logic games sections, all of that same question type. Ugh. Whoa. While I think that this approach is effective... We haven't yet done anything that was timed with the exception of the addition, the initial diagnostic test. I'm trying to time myself on most of the homework whenever possible. No, you don't. That's not smart though. Cause you're not doing actual sections, but I haven't yet done any 35 minute section drills. And I'm worried that I won't be able to pace myself properly come test day. Mm.
0: So I have several reactions to this. Me first, too. First, first of, of all, all um, this just sounds like a ton of homework. I mean,
1: mm.
0: uh 80 LR questions, 12 RC sections or
1: passages? That can't be. That must be passages.
0: Yeah, it's got okay. And
1: 12 logic games, that must also be 12 games, not 12 sections of games because you can't give sections if they're <laughs> if they're focusing on a type. Yeah. So, that is a lot of shit, though. It wow. is a lot of
0: shit. And like I think that um look, on occasion, I've given people uh, the same question type back-to-back so they can understand it, and I know you do that in your, your book, um, the LR Encyclopedia. I don't think there's a problem with that on a small scale, but Testmasters is sort of known for doing this on a gargantuan scale. So I'd want to know what those 80 LR questions, if that's 80 LR questions of the exact same type... Um, it's fine at first to do 20 of them and get your mind wrapped around a must-be-true question. But in the end, you're going to want to practice questions mixed up because you're not doing 80 must-be-true questions back-to-back on the test. And if you're no. doing that every single homework time and you're doing so many, I just feel like it's, it's actually an ineffective approach. Um, and it's been shown to. This is not just my speculation. There's There are books on um, learning and You basically want to play or you want to practice how you're going to play. So if you're going to uh, play with a timed 35-minute section, play, I mean, as in when you go on game day, when you go to the test, you're going to take a timed 35-minute section five times and those questions are going to be mixed up by different question types in different orders. Uh, That's what you eventually want to get used to. Again, it's not a problem to do some of these back-to-back to learn about them, but that's enough. They they are doing way too much here.
1: Yeah, it's a difference in philosophy. We both are more on the 35-minute section, mixed sections, and then review your mistakes and just desensitize yourself to that ticking clock. Mm-hmm. I fear that with this strategy or this plan, I mean, who is this that's writing? Jillian. Jillian, I'm worried that when she does finally do another one of these practice tests, she's going to be panicked and worrying about the clock. Yeah. You know, and, and she, even the way she says, I'm worried I won't be able to pace myself properly. Yeah. You got to let go of that pacing. It isn't. Yeah. It's not pacing. You don't pace yourself. You focus on getting them right. That's it. Yeah and that's why we do the 35 minute sections so frequently in in my approach and in Ben's approach we we agree that you just you do 35 minute sections all the time so that you can basically learn to ignore the clock that's all we ever are about with pacing it's just ignoring a ticking clock
0: by the way i should add to that that a lot of times when people hear me in class and i'm assuming you and us on the podcast talk about focusing on accuracy over speed and accuracy is so important and that's much more what you should be thinking about. A lot of times they'll come up to me after class and say, Well, I have this 35 minute section. Should I just do it untimed and focus on getting them all right? And it's like, No, <laughs> you do it timed so you get
1: used to ignoring the time, as you were just saying. That's right. It's about desensitizing yourself, it's about, it's about, um, the clock is ticking and you're just going to ignore it because you're a lawyer and you have a big stack of work to do and you probably can't finish that whole stack in 35 minutes, but you're going to do as much of it as you accurately can. And that really has nothing to do with where the clock stands. It has everything to do with just getting them right. But Mm -hmm. if you do untimed practice, then you'll never get used to ignoring the clock. So that's, that's why we do it the way we do it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah clearly testmasters has a different strategy. They also hear i mean there that seems like i mean and i've heard other i've heard testmasters students say, boy i just i couldn't keep up with the homework Mhm i mean that's not surprising when you're getting eighty logical reasoning questions that's um that's a test and a half worth of l r questions, yeah 12 RC passages. That's three tests worth of reading comprehension. And then 12 logic games. That's also three tests worth of games. So this is like, what is that? A total of. Yeah. So three
0: sections, six sections plus another two and a half, three sections. That's 12 sections. So you're doing. (laughs) So it's three
1: tests, three tests a week. Holy for homework. Yeah. And it, and none of it timed, which just seems kind of like a waste. But I, I wouldn't, so I don't know, whatever. We have different, obviously they do it one way, we do it a different way. I don't know what's best. I mean, I know what I think is best, but I, I don't, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying I don't do it that way. Wait, hold um, on,
0: Nathan, hold on.
1: Yes. You are so confident about
0: everything else in the world. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to grant them this? <laughs> uh, I think this is one where we actually have studies behind okay. our approach. Because you remember that? I, I mentioned this book a long, long time ago. I don't remember which episode it was. And uh, I think it's called The Science of Learning. Shoot. Okay. Uh, do you remember this book? Yeah, I remember you bringing it up, yes. Yeah. Um, Anyways, it just went into it. it had a big chapter. Oh no, it's called "Make It Stick: The Science of Success." Oh yeah, I read Learning. that book. a yeah. long time ago. Yeah, yeah. So a big part of this book, a big section of it, was just about how um, people love to study things by focusing on one question type over and over and over again because they they see themselves making progress. But when they actually are put to the test, if if the actual testing environment does not have the same question type over and over and over again then they do more poorly. And the ironic thing was that this book also talked about how even when people are showed that the practice that they did, which was mixed practice, was more effective than the targeted practice, uh, they still felt better about what they learned from the targeted practice, even though the results show that they aren't doing better.
1: (laughs) I think it's just what they're used to. It's just, yeah. that's, that's how, that's how you're, you start in, you know, second grade learning your multiplication tables or whatever, and you just do the same type of problem a million times in a row. Yeah. And that's just what we've all been used to. So we're, we're comfortable with that when they give us 80 of the same type of logical reasoning mm-hmm. question in a row, mm-hmm. we're, we're used to that. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I think it's better to do mixed sections, encounter the questions in context. A uh, half the battle is being able to diagnose the question type, right? Being Mm -hmm. able to see what type of question this actually is that you're doing. Yeah. And if you're doing 80 of them in a row of the same type, you're probably not even reading the question anymore. You're just like, oh, I'm doing must be trues now. Yeah. And you don't even, you don't take the time to realize that they can ask you the must be true question in a variety of different ways. And you're not even learning all of those ways that they can ask you. Yeah. Because you're not having to encounter the question and figure out what type of a question it is, which is a critical part of the actual game. So that's why we do it the way we do it. Um, I think also with testmasters, I just I've had many many students say they didn't feel like they possibly could keep up with the homework, which just adds stress, and stress doesn't help with you with learning. Right, right. I mean, but I mean that does make my suggestion to Jillian is. Well, you don't need to do all of this stuff. Yeah. Like you're diligent. I get it. You're you're being diligent. You're trying to do everything they ask you to do, but hey, you could cut that down by half or even more than half and then mix in some 35-minute sections on your own. Oh, exactly. Do that. Do 35-minute sections.
0: Then based on what you feel like you're struggling with, go to the lesson topics that you feel you need to target and work on yeah and, and use those don't extra do all of these.
1: Yeah. no but use them as as supplemental whatever like oh well we did necessary assumption this week here's 80 logical re- here's 80 necessary assumption questions yeah okay do a few of them yeah you know you don't you don't need to you could dip in and do a couple of them you don't need to do the whole <laughs> mountain of these questions anyway um jillian continues I hesitate to take practice tests or do 35 minute drills on my own because I am sure that I will encounter questions I have already seen as part of the class coursework or homework, and therefore my score will be skewed. Do you give any shits about that, Ben? Nope. I don't. As long as
0: you're learning, you're improving your score, and all we really care about is the score that you get officially.
1: Yeah, the point of these 35-minute sections is not diagnostic. It's so that you can get used to ignoring the clock and it's so that you can get used to encountering these questions in context and figuring out what they are and answering them correctly. You're going to make some mistakes. You can learn from those mistakes. And if you come across the same question twice, who cares? I just you got to let go of that. Doesn't yeah. matter. I think Jillian is worried about getting a 165
0: on a test and then wondering if that 165 is really where Jillian is. But it doesn't really matter because even if it was truly where you are, (laughs) no one cares. You have to if that's where you are, great. And when you go take it, you'll you'll get something close to that. If not, then you'll get something different. But there's gonna be enough tests that are legit in your practice that you'll know where you are.
1: It's it's only one data point anyway. Yeah. And if there's even if ten of the questions, you know, you remember ten of the questions because you've seen them before. That's not going to really change your score all that much. Nope. Um, okay. Uh, I am also afraid to take one of the supplemental tests they offer, which I assume are not used for lesson or homework material on my own, because I presume that there is a good reason for why Testmasters is forcing me to wait until after I have had the lessons learned in weeks one through seven. I wouldn't worry about it. I would just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Just spread
0: them out. You don't want to do them all at once, but use them up over time.
1: Yeah. Just mix in a couple 35 minute sections a week. It's going to be fine. Um, I bought Nathan's logical reasoning encyclopedia and logic games playbook a couple weeks ago, and am doing my best to integrate them into the test masters curriculum. For example, last week's lesson went over weekend questions. And so after the lesson and before the homework, I went through that section of the encyclopedia. I also purchased LSAC's 10 new actual official LSAT prep tests fifty two through sixty-one, but I have not yet taken any of them due to my concerns above.
0: You know it's interesting because uh Jillian was hesitant to take practice tests or do 35 minute sections because she was sure that it would <laughs> in you know have her encounter questions that she's already seen. But right. uh by doing your book and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. buying this other, but you're you're already mixing in everything in this class. So just don't worry about it. Just go do it's, it and learn from it's it. It's
1: totally fine. Who cares? Yeah. You're going to run across the same stuff twice. You might remember it. That's good. That means you learned. That's good.
0: Yeah. See if you get it right again. Sometimes people are like, oh, I s- I've seen this question before, but I can't remember. Is it D right. or E? I'm still stuck between yeah. the two. And you yeah. haven't learned something from that and you right. need to.
1: Right. She could also just stop buying stuff. She has enough. She has more than enough stuff. Now you, you do not need ever to buy any more uh, LSAT stuff. (laughs) You've got all the materials you need. I'm open to any suggestions you both may have, including those that will cost me more than I have already invested. It might be helpful to know that I plan to take the September test if my June score isn't satisfactory. So I do have the option of finishing the test masters course and then enrolling in a different course, um, between the June and September exams. It seems like she's forgetting about the July. Maybe she wrote this before the July test was even announced, but there is one more additional chance to take the test. That's the July test. Yeah. Um, also I am working approximately 50 hours a week, which is why I chose the online self paced format. I got a 150 when I took the initial diagnostic, but because one, I am a slow reader, which isn't really an issue now that I am familiar with the LSAT's writing style, two, I didn't finish any of the sections and three, I didn't know that I should be filling in guess bubbles for the questions I had left over. I feel like it's reasonable to have a goal of 165. Yeah, why not? 150 to 165. We see that happen a lot, especially if you didn't even guess on your, uh, on your practice on your diagnostic you didn't even guess yeah. so that's you should probably i mean you could figure out you probably give a f- yourself a few more points there sure if you left uh you know 30 questions blank you can go ahead and give yourself five more questions correct yeah or six rather six more questions correct thank you guys in advance for your help jillian so I was going to say that we should end it here, but I just ha- I started reading the next email, and I just had to read it.
0: Uh, do you have time for one more? Yeah. yeah it says, hey, guy. <laughs> what, hey, guy. Where did the- hey, guy. <laughs> hey, guy. A question for your next podcast. Did you get this email or something? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. What have you guys Oh, plural, learned from your time tutoring the LSAT that you wished you would have known or adopted during your own time studying?
1: Huh. Uh, boy, I, I don't know. Do you have any, uh, anything jumped to mind immediately? Uh, boy, that
0: was a long time ago. I honestly don't remember all that I did. I would just say, make sure to do 35 minute sections and review them really well. But I think I kind of did that. I don't know if I did that because I was aware of what I should be doing. I think it was just what kind of ended up happening. I did yeah. stupidly do or maybe this wasn't stupid, but I did a lot of game sections and then well this was definitely stupid. I've told you this before. I took my score on the game sections, I multiplied that by four to figure out my LSAT score. <laughs> <laughs> Which aside from the, the the problems with the math there, uh given that the game section typically only has twenty-two oh, to twenty-four questions. Yeah. Right. That was actually good. You know, it kinda skewed my prediction downward. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably made me work harder. Oh dang, I just can't get up there. Um but anyways.
1: I um I never learned to do the if questions first on the logic games until I had been tutoring, uh, teaching LSAT for six years. You know, Ben taught me that on the show. Um, Oh yeah. I, I had learned from the power score, you know, Bibles, which was just do the questions in order. But Ben said, nah, do that list question first and then do all of the if questions and then do everything else. And that that's, I think I would have gotten over the hump more quickly on the games if I would have done that when I was studying um, I wish I would have known i mean there's a, there's a few things that I've learned over the years like there's no such thing as a principle question, yeah
0: mm mm-hmm. you know
1: that those are really just strengthen questions or must be trues sure uh-huh um I've learned that there's no such thing as an inference question because those are just must be trues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've learned that there's no such thing as a most strongly supported question because those are just must be truths, uh, or I think, I think it's more efficient to just think of them that way. Sure. So those are all things that, you know, my, where my thinking has just evolved over the years, but the one, and this was the first thing that sprung to mind and nobody's going to be surprised by this, but I really wish when I was studying for the LSAT, I wish I had a clue how poor of an investment law school was going to be for me. Mm. I had no way of knowing that until I went to law school and worked with, you know, a couple thousand LSAT students who ended up going to law school. Yeah. And I, I, I wish I would have known that, you know, a school like Hastings is really just not that much better than a a lower ranked school that would have let me go for free. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if I could go back time machine and talk to Nathan Fox circa 2007, that is definitely what I would tell him. I would just say, dude, don't, don't, uh, you don't need to pay. Just, you're going to be able to, even with your 2.5 undergraduate GPA, you still are going to be able to go to law school for free. Um, so just please, please do that yeah that's that's the one thing the big ass thing i wish i would have known
0: Mm -hmm. yeah well good question anything else
1: no i think we could leave it there i feel pretty i feel i feel satisfied
0: yeah likewise that was show 135 thanks all y'all for listening nice knowing you don't pay for law school